Above 180 is now on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices with Stitcher. Stitcher's smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. Now is the time to reinforce your bowling arsenal, and BowlerX.com is the online leader in price, service, and selection. With free insured shipping on every item we carry, including a complete line of pro shop supplies, as well as balls, bags, shoes, accessories, and more. Also check out the large selection of closeout and discontinued items at a fraction of their original cost. BowlerX.com, your online bowling superstore and proud sponsor of Above180.com. BowlerX.com, your online bowling equipment superstore, presents the Above180.com podcast. Tim Berg and Joey Serrar are ready to hit the lanes, approaching the issues that you, the bowler, want to know. From the latest equipment reviews, coaching, to drilling layouts, and the stars of the PBA. Now, from Washington, D.C., and the Bowler's Pro Shop in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here are your hosts, Tim Berg and Joey Serrar. Joining us today on the Above180.com podcast is Bill Hall. Bill is a silver certified coach. He, uh, check out BillHallBowling.com. Lots of great stuff on there. Also very pleased because Bill is our official uh, coach of Above180.com, so we're going to be uh, asking Bill from time to time to uh, to add some insight and to, and to help us because ultimately our goal here on Above180 is to help you improve your game and take your game to that next level. Also, Bill was very busy this year at the USBC Open. If, if you visited the showcase lanes, and uh, took the lesson with Bill. Uh, he helped you out there. So, Bill, thank you for joining myself and Above180.com crew member uh, Mike Valenzano today. My pleasure, and thank you for having me on. Okay, uh, Bill, I want to begin this. Most people getting into their second, third week of league, depending on when you started. So I'm just curious on your thoughts on people that maybe took a few weeks off or a month off or a few months off uh, what do people have to remember when they get back into bowling and get back into their leagues? Well, one of the main things is you really got to work on getting the feel back. What I see right now is I see a lot of people getting on the lane trying to force <clears throat> the feel. You know, you got to kind of ease your way into it a little bit. You can't expect to just jump right out of the gate. I mean, just like anything else, you take a few weeks off, it take, you're a little rusty. I don't care whatever it is, even working on a computer program. So you gotta kind of take your time getting back into it, and do a little touch-up work on your game. You know, go practice a little bit, but you know, try not to push it too much too fast. Well, and I know for myself, it was a lot of um, I bowled over the summer, so I wondered, do, do, in your opinion, is it help a bowler to take a little bit of time to just get away from the game and and kind of just mentally get away or do you, do you like to see bowlers if you're helping them improve their game kind of keep bowling full year round well i mean you know it depends on what level you want to be at but it, just like anything you should uh i don't know if you should take three or four months off like i see some players do uh but you should take you know take a, a little break between the end of the summer league the end of the fall league you know, you got to be able to have a, a moment to walk away from it. Otherwise, it becomes monotonous, and it feels too much like you're at a job instead of enjoying the sport of bowling. So, you, you know, you got to kind of be careful with stuff like that. You don't want to get into the fry factor and the burnout. Bill, Mike here. Um, what do you think is the biggest uh, rust factor that somebody has that takes some time off, takes a summer off? What would, like a, like a release or timing, what do you think would be the biggest factor um, in coming back? 
earlier, it all comes down to their setup because uh, <clears throat> what'll happen is you know they may re- think they remember what the, their setup feels like, uh, but since a lot of players don't have a routine for their setup, they do it by memory and they kind of force that issue. Which uh, right from that point on, if it the setup's not quite right, you're going to struggle with your rhythm. You're going to struggle with your swing, and you're going to struggle with your release. So one thing I see that people should do when they get back on the lanes is, you know, even when you're on the lanes all the time, have a routine that helps you with your setup. Because that can wane either way. And it, once it starts going in and out, uh, as with everyone, it'll start affecting the feel of your entire game. So your muscle memory would come back after a while, you're saying? Bill, I know one of the things for me, it seems like I, I come back and <clears throat> I, I forget about some of my the equipment issues that I have. Like, I know I was going through my bag and I'm thinking, okay, well, I need to replace this, kind of need to replace this. Well, this can last. Equipment-wise, talk about what we need to look at as far as things and what we need to really pay special attention to after those first couple of weeks. Well, you know, uh, here's one thing that I see, and I learned this at the USBC Nationals, and it's, uh, everyone's got to understand it, lanes surfaces go through changes. You cannot keep a lane surface one particular way. So lane surfaces go through changes, and if you've taken some time off, and even if the, if a te- if the, the bowling center is oiling them the same way, the characteristic might be a little bit different than what you had the last time you bowled in that particular center. This is the wear and tear on a lane surface. It's just normal. So you can't go in there with the idea that, you, you know, uh, I need all the same equipment that I had last time. I need to make sure that I have high, all highly aggressive equipment. With the way that the game is turning out right now and with what I see, that's kind of what people are doing right now. They just walk in with a, a boatload of aggressive equipment. They have no mild surfaces in order to combat when the oil pattern starts breaking <clears throat> down. So really one of the things you need to remember is, you know, spread out the equipment. There's a reason that you have so many different surfaces on bowling balls now because the oil pattern is going to change and you need to modify the reaction of the ball in the contact of the surface of the ball and the surface of the lane. Don't get hooked on one look or one type of surface of bowling ball. Well, Bill, and you bring up a very key point as you see a lot of guys as they get to that uh, 180 level, 190, 200, maybe they're going out to the USBC Open for their first time and they have all their stuff drilled that works well at their house, at their, you know, couple houses they bowl at locally. So they have everything, you know, pin up, uh, you know, uh, kind of mild because they know that they don't need the lanes are a little, little lighter. There's not as much, uh, much oil on the lanes. And then they go out to nationals. Where it's more of a you know two to one a one and a half to one ratio of oil. There's a lot more volume out there, and they struggle, and then they wonder why, and they get frustrated. But they go out there with the same basic layouts on all their pieces. And for me, as a guy who's kind of moved from Wisconsin, I've been kind of all over the place. I kind of have a feeling, and maybe maybe I'm wrong, but the people up up in that part of the country seem to have different. Not all of them, probably, but they have different layouts and different equipment set up, and they have that pin-down bowling ball that's aggressive that they know they can only throw when they go to nationals or when they go on a, a longer pattern, and they just leave it in the bag. And, and there's some people that don't like doing that because they consider that a waste, but it, it really is, is ne- ne- essential if you really want to excel at the USBC Open and, and Masters and such. 
Well, you know, and you bring up a, a good point. Uh, a lot of the players in the Wisconsin area, and you know, uh, one of the probably one of the silliest things I heard when I was at the USBC National was someone saying they're oiling them for the Wisconsin players, which is basically physically impossible. But you know, those players are they work on their game more. They bowl more competitive type tournaments. You know, and one thing that I noticed is all the teams that did well that came from Wisconsin, overall, their spare making was phenomenal. And you're right, they came in with different layouts, understanding that, you know, the ball's not going to go to, uh, let's say, 45 feet as it does at home and then take a left turn or, you know, snap off the back end. They were all more than willing to look at a more even arc, understanding that maybe they have to lay the ball down a little bit earlier, maybe lay the ball down out on the lane a little bit more to get the reactions that they were looking for. They weren't hooked into just one way of doing it. And, uh, you know, that, to me, was a major key at the tournament. Now, Bill, I have a question for you. Now, I did some writing for Above 180 about um, people that were benefited by the resin ball and people that were hurt by the... um, Inventor of the resin ball. I'd like to get your opinion on there. Who do you think um, benefited the most by the invention of the reactive resin piece? Uh, you know, and I know my article stirred up a lot of controversy, and a lot of people didn't like what I had to say. But in my opinion, I felt that uh, Walter Ray was the biggest benefiter of reactive resin getting into his hand. And I know a lot of people have the argument of, well, he won the player of the year in the 80s. But if you look at the stats, the numbers really don't lie. And once Resin was invented, he he took off. So I'd like to get your opinion on that. Well, I mean, and you know, Walter's a great player. You know, people aren't... You can't just say, well, you know, the bowling ball made him. But did he take advantage of it and work it to his... Use it to his advantage? Absolutely. So did Norm Duke. I mean, there's players that just, you know, they see something. Yeah, maybe they did not have that in their particular physical game at one point. But I can guarantee you, both those players that I'm very well aware of, is they've adapted their physical game to take advantage of the reactive resin. But, you know, that's part of being an athlete. You have to change with the environment. And so I applaud them. I, I agree. People, should be, people shouldn't be mad at them just because they took advantage of it. They're now, my next players. question is, in the urethane era, now I know you toured for a while and you made a couple telecasts, and in my opinion, I felt that uh, Weber and Dell Ballard had a trick that nobody else had with urethane. And I felt that once they were introduced to the reactive resin stuff, they kind of struggled, and I know Pete took a while to adapt to it, but... Who do you think was hurt the most by the invention of your um, resin? I know a lot of careers ended with uh, the invention of resin, so I'd like to get your thoughts on that, if I could. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, Chris Warren, he didn't get any benefit out of reactor resin. There's a guy that was able to create a back end on a little bullet ball well on his own. And then there's a few other players that, you know, that you, they're not even very well known, but at that time, in the 80s and 90s, they were out on tour, at least uh, two of them were, and that's Mark Thayer and a guy named Ray Perez, or we call them Tucky Perez. These two players were very good players. The reactive resin came out, 
and their careers went right off the maps. So, yeah. and then you got another an amateur, Joe Vito, who was a a very good amateur player. Reacting now, I, I know Thayer finished second at a U.S. Open, I believe. Went, uh, went off the map because of what happened with Reactor Resin. So, you know, people have to look around at not just the professionals that got beat up by it, but there's a lot of players that got beat up by Reactor Resin. Steve Hoskins. I mean, the list can go on and on, you know. But you got to look at the other side, too. A player needs to adapt, so I'm not sure... If it ended their career, but it certainly didn't help them, and maybe they just ran out of time to adapt to it. Well, I'd also like you to get—I know one of the bowlers you work uh, very closely with—is Danny Wiseman, and I'd love to get your thoughts on Danny's game. You know, from the '80s all the way up until now, and, and what your thoughts are on Danny Wiseman and, and the the resins. Well, I mean, even you know, I know this is going to sound people are going to quite understand this. Um, his game, we're, we're back to working on it right now. And he's been, we found some glitches. And we're working them out. But believe it or not, Reactor Resin has not helped Danny Wiseman, not because he can't do what he wants with a bowling ball, but this is going to sound a little strange. He's so accurate that the Reactor Resin has actually hurt him. And that's what a lot of, the, I think the younger people now are, taking advantage of that, and that's why a lot of the, I think the talent uh, locally, not even on a professional level, isn't as strong as it used to be because it's the bowling ball gives you the extra three to four boards down the lane, and accuracy is something not in the vocabulary of the modern bowler anymore. And, and, and that's an absolute fact. And, you know, one of the things, I mean, all, bowling has always been about uh, finding a margin of error or a mistake area on the lane. But right now, that margin of error is getting wider and wider and wider. And, you know, that's not really helping bowling too much. And when bowlers go to a tournament, you know, that margin of error may be much smaller. And it may be more inside of target rather than outside of target. You know, so players have to really kind of be careful with wanting to bowl on that easy easy condition because if you're going to go to a tournament, most likely it's not going to be an easy condition. So are you saying, and is this what kind of you're seeing even on the PBA Tour level where it's supposed to be, you know, they're, they're sport-compliant shots and they're supposed to be a challenge to bowlers? Are those shots even, what you would you say they're even easier from the 80s and 90s to where people have more misroom than what they used to? I absolutely believe that. And the reason is is because it, with, the bowling balls have gotten so strong and you can actually – manipulate an oil pattern in 10 minutes, especially if you have all players playing in that same type of area on the lane. So it may not be what they are laying down on the oil pattern that is the problem, but what's happening is players are smart enough to know how to manipulate it and open up the change the pattern on their own to make it easier. And when you have a lot of top professionals that know how to read a pattern, know how to break a lane down, uh, they will open up the shop because of what's going on. And, Bill, that was more obvious last year at uh, the South Point at the World Series when you saw Rash on every show. And it kind of seemed like that every pattern he got to play his A game on the lane. He got to get in, and that's by breaking the pattern down. Would you agree with that statement as well? Absolutely. I mean, but again, a player test, take advantage of what's there. That's what their job is. 
I mean, but do you think it's fair that a player can break down a pair before the lights go on where they can throw, you know, a 200-grid ball up the track to burn that spot? Uh, no, absolutely not. But, it, I mean, it, um, I, I... And you know that it, does happen on tour. We, we've all seen it, and Brian Voss has been very vocal about one instance years ago that happened to him. Um, I, I just don't think that's fair, personally, uh, the breakdown. is, But it's almost like cheating, in my opinion. And, and it's not where, you know, uh, but, you know, the PBA player is now, is now kind of at an advantage or a disadvantage, excuse me, because everybody at home is bowling on such soft soft conditions that they they see everybody around them on a league uh, shooting high scores, and then when they turn on a TV and they look at a professional and a professional shooting lower scores, it, they actually believe that they can beat them because the problem is is oil is invisible, or at least so much so that the eye can't just pick it up and look at it on the pattern on a lane. So players do have a misunderstanding of what is actually going on with the help they're getting in their league play uh, about oil patterns. Until we can find a better way to uh, get them to see it, I think it will continue to be a problem and be a hindrance to the professional. But I agree with you. Overall, I don't believe anybody should be able to break down an oil pattern. Amateur level, professional, any level will bully. Well, so... That, that being said, there have to be, you know, the kegels of the world and the people that design the oil have to be trying to come up with ways to combat these super strong bowling balls. And then we haven't even mentioned anything with the rev factor yet either of the, you know, Jason Belmonte's and, and the, the folks like the, uh, you know, Oscar Palermo's and the guys, the two-handed bowlers who just, you know, have that humongous rev rate, which just also beats these patterns up to their advantage. And you see them on the burn lofting, you know, lofting the gutter by the third game, basically, or even sooner. So... Are they working, or, or do you think something needs to be done to to change the uh, the oil to make it so it it doesn't transition quite as quick? Um, you know, I think they've gone as far as they can with the oil. I think now it's it's up to our governing body, and who knows? Maybe it's time to go. You know, for years we've been trying to put more and more oil on the lane. Uh, maybe it's time that we start doing a minimum of oil and start taking some of the oil off the lanes so some of the stronger bowling balls uh, won't be able to make it down the lane and and burn up the surface and, and the pattern so quickly. I think we're at a point now where we're at a tipping point. Where we've got to figure out which way to go, but I'm sure Kegel's got something on in their minds because, you know, I talked to John Davis once in a while and you know, the guy is brilliant, and I think he recognizes that there's a problem. So we're going to have to figure out which way we're going as an industry pretty soon. Now, Bill, when you bowled back on tour in the 80s, uh, they didn't have the animal patterns and whatnot. Now, with, with, with the patterns break down more back in the day than they do now? I mean, how did, how did you guys accommodate that breakdown and such? The, actually, the oil didn't break down near as much as it does now. Uh, because we had a surface that, uh, surface of ball that pushed the oil down the lane. The lanes actually started off hooking more and got tighter. Now they start off tighter, and once you take oil off the lane, that's it. There's, you can't run out there and put it back on. So it was a completely different environment. And uh, the lanes actually got tired, and w once you uh, got to a point I mean, our big thing then was to shine up a urethane or shine up a plastic. 
so that you can keep it in play and keep on top of the same area of the lane. Uh, but right now we're running out of lane. I mean, uh, just as you mentioned earlier, you know, you got Oscar and you got Belmonte and, yeah, and a few, quite a few other players stepping into the gutter and lofting it across their lane, the lane because the volume of oil is being just taken off the lane so quick. So it's a very different environment now. And, Bill, back then, I mean, I know we didn't have the two-handers back in the 80s, but did you ever have guys that were lofting the gutter cap or playing in front of the ball return, like a Steve Cook, somebody like that that had a lot of hand back then? Uh, absolutely not. There were, you know, that was not even considered. About the biggest lofter you had was uh, Mark Roth, and that was he didn't really loft it out there. That was that was really about it. But you did have a two-hand player. His name was Chuck Landy, but at that when the, at that point in time. Uh, the two-hander just couldn't keep up because the, the margin of error was more to the left or inside a target for a right-hander. And the margin of error now is much more to the outside of the target for a right-hander. So uh, it's taken full advantage of it. Well, Bill, on that note, we're going to leave, uh, leave uh, have to go. Um, I know it was great talking to you. I know Mike really enjoyed this, and, and it was a really a fun podcast. And, Bill, we're going to have to get you back again because, like I said, we want to start doing some things where we involve some of the listeners and helping them with their games. And, and uh, by all means, if you have a question for Bill, why don't we just do this? You had a question for Bill. Shoot it to me at tim at above180.com. What we're going to try to do on a monthly or semi, uh, you know, once every couple months is have Bill answer some some of your questions regarding your game and what you have help with, whether it's, uh, making a 10-pin is something so simple as something that some of us think is is, uh, is simple, but for someone at that 170, 180 average, that's all the difference for them making their game. So if there's something like that, maybe you have something that's in your game you want um, you want some questions answered about, just uh, shoot us an email, Tim at Above 180, and uh, and by all means, we'll, we'll get it to Bill, and we'll see what we can do to help you out. All right, gentlemen, thank you for having me on. Thank you, Bill. For Tim Burke, Bill Hall, Mike Valenzano, good luck and good bowling.